So we're on slide seven of the previous PowerPoint. There's just eight. And then we'll start on the next one, which is probably the printout you have. And I don't know how far it will get, but I actually added a slide to that one. So, but it's all good scripture for us to learn. Let me read the passage and then we'll pray. The, ba- the passage here, Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. The topic a few weeks ago was prayer for boldness. They prayed for boldness. And I was pointing out that we all need that. The entire world is arrayed against the gospel. And, and they think it's foolishness. But God called us to preach it. So because we're called to preach it, and the whole world hates it, one prayer that we always need is prayer for boldness. Because there's a huge temptation to change the message so you fit in with the world and have popularity. How many famous writers, authors, radio people, or TV preachers have caved in and they give a message that the world wants to hear. And rather than doing that, we should pray for boldness. So here's Paul. Now, as we read Acts, we would think uh, nobody's more bold than Paul. The computer's out in the, out there. Nobody's more bold than Paul. Why would he need prayer? My friends, we can't just trust our natural personalities to be sufficient for anything. We need prayer if we're going to stay focused on the gospel. Let me read it and then we'll pray. Pray also for me, says Paul, that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough in him to speak as I should. We all need the same prayer. So to that end, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that the fear of man is a snare, that because the entire world, the people of power in this world are arrayed against the gospel, and as the early apostles prayed, that you might grant your servants boldness, that we might preach the word, that the gospel may be on our lips, that we might not be ashamed, that we might say focus on your son Jesus Christ and his cross and the blood atonement and escaping your wrath against sin. So to that end, we pray that today we might all have boldness in the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are, slide seven of whenever it was I did last taught, Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. And I think we could easily agree that if somebody as bold as Paul needs prayer for boldness, we do too, right? We need this prayer Always. Now I had some cross references. Acts nineteen eight. 
later in Acts. And it says, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Reasoning and persuading. So with boldness, he reasoned and he persuaded, persuaded, excuse me. So therefore, we can see something that we know to be true. Us being bold doesn't mean we don't need the truth and we don't need reasons and we don't need logic. The applications that we make of the scripture in the gospel are logically derived from the meaning of the text. Okay? So it's right that we reason and persuade by God's grace. Somebody just yesterday was telling me, well, I'm trying to witness to this one relative, and she's such a strong atheist or agnostic, and she has all these reasons and arguments, and I don't feel adequate. All I could think of was something doesn't come from nothing. And I said, what else do you need to think of? There you go, right there. Something doesn't come from nothing. So she was doing way better than she knew she did. Let the atheist tell us how something came from nothing. And that's a logical conundrum, isn't it? So God uses us because we know the truth. And we're convinced of it. Now, I also have here 1 Thessalonians 2, 2 through 5, where Paul said, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Some cases, Paul and his Co-workers were dragged out of town and even stoned. Can you imagine how much boldness it would take to keep going back when they treat you like that? But here, God had answered the prayer he asked for, and he had boldness. Verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we've been approved by God, to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor a pretext for greed. God is witness. One of the things that goes along with having boldness is that God purifies our motives. If we had some bad motives, we can't say what Paul said. We didn't come with flattering speech. I think of a chapter in The Purpose Driven Life that tells people that aren't even Christian that they can learn how to make God smile. I'll just give you an example. How do you sell 20 million books? Well, you teach people how they're going to make God smile. And then there's proof text. Noah made God smile. 
out of some really bad paraphrased translation. So when I wrote about this, I just calmly took the passage that Rick Warren was citing and showed that it was a bad translation. What the text in Genesis actually says is not that Noah learned the secret how to make God smile. Isn't God lucky that I'm around? (laughs) I don't think so. The real text says Noah found grace. Now let's boil that down. One of the reasons we're here now as Gospel of Grace Fellowship was over a theological dispute. You may not know this. And here's the dispute. Here's the difference. Are we going to emphasize what we're going to do for God or what God has done for us? You can talk to Eric about that. That's what it boiled down to. And Eric and I were saying the gospel is about what God has done for us. Others were saying, well, you need to tell people what they're going to go do for God. Rick Warren is about what we do for God. The gospel is about what God's done for us. Do we make God smile or do we find grace from God in spite of that we're sinners? And so when God spared my life the first time and I ended up back preaching, I determined that what shall be preached from my lips is what God has done for us and what he's promised to do. So we remember what God did and we believe the promises of God and we go forward. And there's our boldness. Now, my boldness is about what I think I did or am going to do for God. I'll become intimidated because my eyes will get on myself and I'll realize how wicked I've been in the past and how weak I am now. And that goes against boldness. But if it's about what God did and what God promised to do, there we find boldness in Christ. My dear brothers and sisters, has God done a great work of grace in your life? If he has, is it because of what you did or what he did? So what should we write about? What should we preach about? What is the New Testament about? It's about God, his work of grace, and his promises. The forces of darkness in the entire world are arrayed against the gospel. We must pray for boldness because God has commissioned us to preach what will never be popular. You're never going to be the next Robert Schuler. I don't see anybody shedding any tears. Look with me, if you want to turn to it, at 1 Corinthians 9, 16. And I realize now just how literal this is for Paul. And then we have one more slide and we'll be 
of the stuff, and we'll go to this week. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. This is from the apostle. How important is the gospel? How important is that we preach it? Paul actually said he was under compulsion. I understand that a little better now. Paul in 2 Corinthians was saying that he'd actually seen paradise. I haven't. But I believe what Paul said. Inexpressible things not lawful for a man to utter. I haven't seen paradise, though I've been close to being there a couple times. But I was thinking about this. All the mysteries will be revealed. All truth will be known. There'll be only holiness in paradise. No flesh and sin and mixed motives. And if we answer to God for deeds done in the body, and we start thinking about all our failures, what a horrid thought, and what fear would fill our heart. But when we're thinking about eternity, if our heart and mind is on the gospel, we'll start thinking, whatever heaven is, we're going to be praising the Lamb who was slain forever and ever. We learned that from Eric in Revelation. Blessed be the Lamb. Holy is the Lamb who was slain. And what we have to look forward to is the truth of the gospel forever and ever. And so we preach it now. Yes, Brian. As part of that 1 Corinthians nine sixteen, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. There is severe judgment for ministers and pastors who don't do that. I wonder, I, th- I wonder sometimes if I start preaching your best life now and how to make God smile. What would I think if I landed in eternity? What am I going to tell Christ? It says we'll all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Am I going to say, well, I uh, had a big empire. A lot of people bought my books. Or am I going to be able to confess the gospel? It's all about Christ and the gospel. What's it about? Christ in the gospel. What's in eternity? Christ in the gospel. Some might say, well, you don't need the gospel in eternity. Well, read Revelation and figure out why they're singing about it. The lamb that was slain, who purchased for himself people from every tribe and nation and tongue, who we will join with singing glorious worship songs to the Lamb and to the Lord. And I know I've been a little worried about my voice, but it seems to be getting better. But you know what? It'll be fine in eternity. And there won't be any sinners to preach to. We'll just be joining the angelic chorus. And I assume I'll learn how to sing. (laughs) It'll be even on tune. 
So let's go to a cool verse, if I can use that term from the 70s. But this particular verse here, I can say with all my heart, is far more profound than we realize. We really must understand the profundity and the application of this verse. Because it tells us, though the term prayer is not mentioned, really what Christian prayer is. And what a glorious privilege we have. Let me read it. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. There's our term that we're studying. Boldness in prayer. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. I'm quoting from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Now, if you think about ancient kings that had all kinds of absolute power in their kingdom, you didn't go traipsing in to the throne of an earthly king. Remember Esther and her trepidation? Well, if I go to the king unbidden, he could just have me killed, you know. And so you don't go skipping and jumping into the throne room of some pagan fallen king and say, hey, king, here's what I need. He has to ask for you. You don't get to go there. Now imagine this. Here is the king who's holy, sinless, all-powerful, all-knowing, on his throne, the king of the universe, the king eternal, and we can go boldly there when we know we need to, whenever. I don't think we get it. Wow. This is true. If I go to this throne room, I won't be killed. I won't be driven away. I won't be mocked. But I'll find timely help. It says here, I'll find mercy. I'll find grace. What is it that we need? And I think of some of the things I listened to when I was a young, deceived, pietist Christian. Little booklets that we used to buy for 35 cents. One of which I had by Kenneth Hagin, How to Write Your Own Ticket with God. Put your order in. I want this, and I want that, and I want the other thing. And you tell God he has to give it to you. What does this here say? What we need is mercy and grace. That God receives sinners. Now let's unpack this a little bit. Approach is a technical term, proserchomai. And when I taught through Hebrews twice now, I love these terms that you find in the Greek. Hebrews has some of the most beautiful, eloquent, advanced Greek in the entire New Testament. So that had, some people use that as a clue as to who wrote it. Some think Apollos. But someone who was a Hellenistic Jew, highly trained and eloquent 
in the Greek language. Now, pros erkamai, toward, erkamai would be to approach or to be welcomed, to come. Pros is just toward, that's a prefix. And it's used in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, for approaching God. It was a technical term that was used when Aaron or the priesthood would go through their proper preparation and then they were able to approach God in their priestly service. Now, what is this telling us? Well, one thing here, look at the passage. It reinforces the idea of the priesthood of every believer. Because of what Christ has done for us, each one of us, ordinary Christians, are suited to approach God as if we were the high priest on the Day of Atonement and everything had been done properly. But it's all of us. We can go into the presence of God. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So not only can we approach, and we don't have to have a rope. Now, there's nothing in the Bible about that rope that maybe they used to drag the dead high priest out if God didn't accept him. Have you heard that story? I don't know if it's even true. It's not in the Bible. It's kind of fanciful, but probably wouldn't be a dumb idea. If he did die, he wouldn't want to be the one to go in there and try to get him. But we don't need to worry about that because Christ has made a way by with his own blood that we might go into the holiest place with boldness where we receive grace, mercy, and timely help. It implies just in time because of the ministry of our great high priest. I don't think most Christians, in fact, I'm sure, understand the profundity of the book of Hebrews. It's not well enough known. I've taught through it twice, and we have it on our website as radio. I can't get enough of it. I'm so tempted to keep going back to Hebrews. It's not a bad temptation, I guess. So he approached the throne of grace. This isn't a throne. It is God is wrathful. And his wrath is directed against sin. But for us, the redeemed is a throne of grace. F.F. F. Bruce, the great scholar, says this. He said it was at the earthly mercy seat that the work of atonement was completed in token on the day of atonement. And the grace of God extended to his people. The presence of the Christian's high priest on the heavenly throne of grace bespeaks a work of atonement completed not in token but in fact and the constant availability of divine aid in all of their need, says Bruce. Thanks to him, the throne of God is a mercy seat to which they have free access and from which they may receive all the grace and power required for timely help in the hour of trial and crisis. When I was studying this into Greek, that was fascinating to me. The word for proper time there implies 
just in time. Timely. Wow. Can you imagine? That happened to me lately. Just when they were saying I had hours to live, the prayers of the saints went up, and God kept me here, and here I am teaching. Someone last night told me, well, you're a walking miracle. Certainly not because of me. (laughs) Timely. Timely. Maybe in our own thinking we would go, well, I would prefer life where I never have any troubles to start with. Wouldn't we all prefer that? How many here have lived a life where they never have any troubles to start with? (laughs) I do not see that hand. There is none. We would like that, but we do have the troubles. And there comes our test of faith. Do we go to the throne of grace to find grace, mercy, with boldness we go and approach timely help? Or do we think, you know, I think I can just pull on my own bootstraps and I'm kind of a tough person. I'm just going to fight this and gut it out. You know what? We need to go to the throne of grace. And we learn a lesson there. The proper time. With boldness. Another scholar, William Lane, whose commentary on Hebrews is the best. If you want to study Hebrews, you better get William Lane. I I warn you, it's very technical. But there's none better. Let me quote William Lane. The throne of grace is the place of God's presence from which grace emanates to the people of God. The only one who was permitted to draw near, he gets that, under the provisions of the Mosaic covenant was the high priest could approach the altar in the most holy place of the tabernacle once a year on the day of atonement. If his ministry was acceptable, acceptable, The altar of judgment became the place from which mercy was dispensed to the people. Says Lane, in a bold extension of the language of worship, the writer calls the community to recognize that through his high priestly ministry, Christ has achieved for them what Israel never enjoyed, namely immediate access to God and the freedom to draw near to him continually. They may draw near to God through prayer with the confidence the term boldness by the way can be translated confidence that they will be graciously received. As I said when I introduced this verse I don't think that we take it seriously enough. One of the most important verses in the Bible And if you're going to teach about prayer, if you don't cover this verse, you're not a very good teacher. Even prayer can be distorted and perverted into pietism. What do I mean by that? Well, we do for God rather than what he does for us. Pietism is about us being better Christians than others, higher order, more holy, more important, It's the very essence of monasticism in Rome. 
And I hear people saying, well, I went away and I prayed for nine hours. So there. <laughs> well, how do I answer that? I'd say, if it wasn't for the mercy of God through the blood atonement, God wouldn't hear me for one minute. I came to him and he graciously accepted my prayer at the throne of grace. I didn't earn that. He paid for it and offered it as a free gift. And woe to me if I don't go to the throne of grace because it shows unbelief. Mike. I think the quintessential verse for that, or one of them anyways, I believe it's Luke 13 where the Pharisee is praying. Thank God I am not like other men. I pay my uh, tithes. I go on and on and on. I am so wonderful. And then the tax collector stands off and won't even lift his eyes to heaven and says, have mercy, beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Christ says, I tell you, the tax collector went home justified. Yeah, and uh, justified there is very important. That's a great, when he said have mercy, in the Greek it says be propitious. Avert your wrath against my sin. Great, great read. That's a good reading. You get the Astute Reading Award. He had his coffee already. <laughs> Could you explain again the difference between pietism and a Christian being pious? Okay. Pietism implies a higher order of Christians that have either had some secret insight, some higher order experience, some harder work, or something they did to put them into a higher category than ordinary Christians. So you have the haves and the have-nots. Piety, in its good use in the Bible, and you do find the term, probably Eusebia, is what God has done for us. I think we can just go back, and this is revolutionary. Think about this. And it's very biblical. Is it what we do for God or what God has done for us? And we compare ourselves to other Christians, which according to Paul is a bad idea. But if that thought ever goes into our mind, we drive it out by saying, God has shown mercy to me, a sinner. And I hope that's true for everybody else. But it doesn't make me better. And I read a book that's supposed to tell us about the secrets that some higher order Christian figured out. I know before I start, the book is full of false doctrine. It's either revealed or it's not revealed. If it is revealed... It's for all of us. If it's not revealed, the guy that wrote the book knows nothing what he's talking about. I just finished such a book. This guy claims he has mysteries. The rest of us bumpkins can't understand. Go ahead. Yeah, I was uh, at a Bible study recently that's occasionally led by a Pentecostal. And he started out by saying, you know, tonight we're going to learn how to, how to uh, bring our spiritual life to the next level. Because God's always saying, come up here. And then he goes on and starts proof texting all kinds of stuff about humility. And then God will exalt you. And 
all That's this the stuff. Sermon? The whole thing, the Last whole week? Bible study was how to get to the next <laughs> level. <laughs> Last week, I was just preaching about that humility in Colossians that Paul warns about. Where can you find, imagine the irony? I'm more humble than everybody else. Let that just give you something to think about. No, I think I'm full of pride, and but God has done a work of humbling me, and I really would like to stay in that condition. It's a better way to think about it. Well, I hope this helps. To summarize, God is gracious and merciful, and he asked us and told us to pray for boldness, and has provided the throne of grace where we can boldly come as sinners needing help. As Mike said about the man praying, God be propitious to me, a sinner. It doesn't have to be eloquent, but it needs to be from the heart as we ask God for mercy. I don't think a night goes by because I have a real hard time sleeping. I lay down and say to the Lord, help me. Dear Lord, help me. Just to sleep would be so wonderful. And sometimes I do. I did last night. What do you know? Okay, we got a new PowerPoint. Oh, man, I've been a long time. You know what? I'm not going to apologize for teaching on that verse. It's needed. Let's go to the next. Now we'll get on to your papers. This is an interesting section, so you have to pay attention. We'll be at, looks like we'll be back to it next week. What well, we have in Acts 4, 32 through 5, 11, by the way, the chapter divisions are not inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to blow right by one because I think they got it wrong. The idea of right and wrong giving starts in 432 and is bookended by something in 511. So we have two examples, three if you count the couple as two people, I guess. Barnabas, a good example, Ananias and Sapphira, a bad example. Okay? And so we have plenty of opportunity to learn about giving and generosity. Let me read the text from the New American Standard. In the congregation... Verse 432, of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed as any had need. And Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated being son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now we have the contrast in 5.1, beginning in 5.1. 
But a certain man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. Bringing a portion of it, he laid it to the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. We continue here. And the young man arose and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interview of about three interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. She wasn't invited to the funeral, I guess. Verse 8. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. She said, Yes, that was the price. And then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. They shall carry you out as well. She fell immediately at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Wow. Now there is being slain in the spirit, right? (laughs) Not Benny Hen style. (laughs) Now let's go back to verses 42 and 43 about the congregation. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Abundant grace was upon them all. So we have here Luke's description of the early church. This is an expansion, if you will, of what was said earlier in Acts 2 about how they bore one another's burdens, cared for one another. Here they had unity in the gospel, said they were one heart and mind. And the, the word there, the congregation of those believed in the Greek is plethos in the Greek. And it bookends another word like it in Acts 5.11, halos, whole. So the large group and the whole. So here's what it was like. Throughout this pericope, the imperfect tense is used in the verbs. And what do we mean by that? What's the imperfect tense in the Greek? Well, it was something that was happening without necessarily saying it stopped or whatever. It's just what, what happened. And one scholar said, you could say it this way. 
This is how it used to be. This is how it used to be. Now we know from what we read already in early in Acts 5, there was no law of God that forbade owning land. There was no law of God that commanded that they sell all their land. This was purely voluntary. And I'm of the opinion that since the law of Christ is that we bear one another's burdens, this is how they chose to do it. And they spontaneously and voluntarily sold capital assets and distributed to those who were needy among them. Now, a lot has been written on this. I know F.F. Bruce mentioned it. In the long run, it's really not a very good plan, practically. You know, the first pilgrims that came to America tried to do it this way, and they ended up in poverty with people starving to death. Socialism never has really worked. And so they went to private property. Now, here we don't have any what's commanded. Let me just say it this way. What the Holy Spirit commands through Luke is bearing one another's burdens and loving and meeting needs and generosity. But there's no command for, from God against the ownership of private property. Now, I studied economics at Iowa State. I was planning on having a double major, chemical engineering and economics. And I took a lot of classes in economics. See, if you own land and you have a crop every year, you can keep giving to the poor. But if you sell the land and give away all the proceeds, which you're free to do, you're never going to have another crop. And whatever all that is gone, the church will be without capital assets and it'll end up in poverty. Now, if you read through the entire book of Acts, what happened later in Jerusalem? Anybody know? Yeah, they had a famine. Of course, they don't have any crops. They don't have any land anyhow. That church became impoverished. And Paul took up an offering throughout Asia Minor and Greece to bring to Jerusalem to relieve the sorry state that they were in in their desperate situation. Now, that doesn't prove this caused that, but F.F. Bruce pointed out that that is what Acts tells us. And we don't have an ongoing situation where every time somebody becomes a Christian, they sell their farm. Now, the command to be selfless and generous always stands. However, that is done. Christians have always helped each other. They've always been generous. You can read about what Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians, there's two whole chapters. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, about the, the right administration of what's given, about the grace that causes Christians to give, about the care for one another that Christians always have. Luann. And uh, 
So, uh, and then after her question or comment, I have four things here I want to say that characterize what was emphasized here. Yes, Loanne. I guess what you were just describing then also made me think of, um, you know, back in the day when um, the Catholic Church and their indulgences to build St. Peter's, you know, the Basilica and how, you know, you do have to watch the leadership and not just because, you know, I mean, corruption will steal. Yeah, well, that's what led to the Reformation was the indulgences. That's what Luther was outraged about. As a matter of fact, wasn't everybody better off once they had St. Peter's? No. They still had no way to come to God through the gospel. The way was still blocked. Now they had this magnificent edifice. You know, Christians with access to a lot of people to do fundraising have always been prone to build edifices. I saw a guy on TV who was raising money, and every time he'd be on, he's walking through this construction site of this massive edifice he's building, and he wants more money. And I've wondered how many massive edifices with spires reaching into heaven. I'm not saying it's always a sin, but is that the best way to bear one another's burdens? Are the poor saints who need prayer, who need food, who need help, who need to be visited, who need to be cared for, are they better off because they get to go to an edifice once a week with gold gilding? I don't know. Something to think about. I'm not saying it's a sin to build a building always, nor is it a sin to have a building. But the emphasis that needs to be on the saints. Here's four things. If you want to jot these down, four truths that are emphasized in this pericope. These things are good. Four. Number one, unity. They were one heart and soul. What produces unity that pleases God? Let me give you the four, and then we'll talk about them one at a time. First one is unity, and we'll talk about that. Second one is generosity, which is clear. The third one is power. And the fourth is grace. And we see these right here in these first two verses. Unity, generosity, power, and grace. So let's start with unity. From a human perspective, it's true that one can gain unity by getting everybody hitched up like a team of horses and pulling towards some common goal. Now, that's just human wisdom. And so if you announce that you're going to build the Crystal Cathedral, you can get people motivated to be hitched up to that particular goal and work and administrate and give and to be self-sacrificing so that we can have this crystal cathedral or something like it. Now, how does the Bible say that we have Christian unity? Yeah, through the means of grace, through the gospel. 
on our CIC podcast, Eric reads a passage at the very end of every one of our broadcasts. And it's from Philippians 1.27. Philippians 1.27. Does somebody want to look that up so they can read it? Okay, Mike has it. Bring him, bring Mike to Mike. We read that because we believe that's where Christian unity ought to come from. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Think about how Christendom, Loan mentioned St. Peter's Cathedral, good example, that goes way back in history, has tried to change the idea of Christian unity to striving together to do some monumental task that would wow people. Look at what we did. Look at what we built. Look at how great we are. Look at what we did for God. Remember those distinctions. But according to Philippians 127, to be of one heart and soul comes in a pleasing to the Lord way from striving together for the faith of the gospel. So as one person, we, the redeemed, in our local fellowship, are striving together for the gospel. We share the gospel. We encourage each other in the gospel. We preach the gospel. We contemplate the gospel. We pray according to the terms of the gospel and go boldly to the throne of grace. And thus there is one heart and one soul. So once you have St. Peter's Cathedral, then what happens from there on? The windows leak. leak? All right. Well, you might be impressed and, and we might do some impressive things. But is that striving together for the faith of the gospel? Is it right that we tell people they can give money and cut off time in purgatory so that we could have this? Here's what I'm suggesting. Building or no building, that's in God's hands. I'm not saying, I am not saying it's a sin to have a building. I'm not saying it's a sin to build a building. But in the process, however we do that, whether we have a building or not is negotiable, may or may not happen. But striving together for the faith of the gospel is non-negotiable. And whether we're here or somewhere else, we must strive together for the faith of the gospel. People do that in prisons. They do it in third world countries. They do it on the mission field. It's not dependent on a whole lot of people giving a whole lot of money. So they are one heart and soul. That was a work of God through the gospel. Secondly, generosity. Now, one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own. Yesterday, I was at a kind of a birthday retirement party for someone most of you know. 
And I heard stories I never, never knew about. About a man who, through all his life, was always generous. Just spontaneously generous. One of his sons said, uh, what happened to your car? Remember the story, Peter? He was there. Oh, I gave it away. You gave your car away? Yeah, I saw somebody need it. I just gave it to him. It was a Cadillac. Well, here, you take it. <laughs> so, it was, you know, we, a lot of us, we all had tears in our eyes as we heard these stories and never knew about any of these things. My dad was like that. He absolutely was generous, sometimes to his own hurt. Doesn't mean we need, don't need to use wisdom, but... If you read 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, you'll see that the hallmark of Christian giving is gracious generosity that comes spontaneously. And it's for the welfare of the body of Christ. And I love that. I love that about Christians. I've been able to do it and I've been able to receive. People have been generous to me in a time of need, and I've had other times of my life where I was able to do that. We go through different seasons, but Christians care for one another and take care of one another. So that was commended here. Number three, power. It says, with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection the Lord Jesus Christ. As I've said several times, every sermon in the book of Acts mentions the resurrection. You may have noticed, but here at Gospel of Grace Fellowship, when you hear the gospel preached every Sunday, do we not always mention the resurrection? I like to mention that Jesus predicted his own resurrection. And was raised. No, Muhammad didn't do anything like that. He's dead. Muhammad has no throne of grace either, I'll tell you. Jesus does. So power. And then lastly, abundant grace was upon them all. It's by grace alone that we're saved. It's through grace that we're sanctified. It's through the throne of grace that we come in prayer and find timely help. God has promised these things even in the Old Testament. You may want to look at Jeremiah 32, 38, and 39. And I think that what's happening here in Acts is a fulfillment of some of these promises about the new covenant. You find in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32, 38, and 39. It says there, they shall be my people, and I will be their God. There's the covenant formula, by the way, throughout the Old Testament. You shall be my people, I will be your God. That's the promise. Now they rejected Yahweh, and they went after the gods of the pagans, and they ended up under the host of heaven, according to Stephen. But here was the promise. They shall be my people, I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way 
that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Wow. Great covenant promise. And this is applied to the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Yesterday, talking about that get-together I was at, there was a whole raft of grandchildren. I thought about this passage in uh, the Old Testament. I haven't looked it up. But the great blessing was that your descendants would rise up and call you blessed. And we witnessed that happen. And I said to somebody, as you reach into old age, wouldn't that be a great thing to hope for? It doesn't always happen, but I would like to see my descendants at some point call me blessed. Not that they haven't. A great grace, an abundant grace, is always at work when we come to God on his terms. One more quote, and we'll be done with this slide, and we'll be done with our Sunday school for this morning. It says David Peterson in his pillar commentary on Acts, but the remarkable point about this verse is the implication that it was the powerful preaching of the gospel that motivated the earliest Christians to such generosity. Not specifically preaching about money or impassioned exhortations from the leaders to share possessions. The gospel message about God's grace in Christ inspired a culture of self-giving love. What is the lesson? Preach the gospel accurately and forthrightly with power and the results will be one heart and one soul, generosity, grace, power to preach the resurrection and grace upon the church of God. Let us pray. Thank you, dear Lord, that we have such a great opportunity to look into your word and learn from you through the Holy Spirit-inspired scripture what's important and what isn't. And may we be people characterized by unity, generosity, power, and that we might be recipients of grace. We ask these in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.